From their studio in the Feeding Arizona building in Youngtown, Arizona, it's the Boomer and the Babe Show with Pete Peters and Deborah Brown. Join Pete and Deborah and their guests as they give voice to 78 million baby boomers from coast to coast and border to border. Now here are the Boomer and the Babe, Pete Peters and Deborah Brown. Yes, it is the Boomer and the Babe Show, and welcome to it. It is 11 o'clock in the morning still out on uh, Ariz- out in Arizona, in the great desert of Arizona. Uh, 10 o'clock on the West Coast, and I believe 1 o'clock on the East Coast. If I've got my time zone straight, they just changed, and I'm all confused. Uh, at any rate, we want to welcome every- everybody that's listening, regardless of where you might be hearing us. Uh, we also want to mention to you that the Boom and the Babe Incorporated is involved in much more than just this radio program or the other radio programs we do. We also publish e-books, mini-books, and we do some consulting for authors looking to have their books published. So you can take a look at everything we do at boomerandthebabe.com. That's boomerandthebabe.com. Drop us a line via that website. And also you can sign up for our uh, mailing list, which also gets you our Boomer Experience Speaks Online magazine. It comes free to your inbox every four to six weeks, and we hope that you'll avail yourselves of that as well. And I'm Pete Peters. Deborah is uh, on assignment doing some work with those authors that we uh, were just mentioning. And we have our guest today that's going to be helping us with the show and talking about adult addictions. And her name is Deborah J. Deborah, welcome to the program. Thank you very much for being here. Well, it's good to be here, Pete. Thank you very much. Well, I know you came in uh, uh, on a, on a last-minute situation as a substitute for somebody I that, did. that you know, and I think you have worked with. And is it, am I correct in assuming that you wrote a book with uh, with, with Carol Collarin? Well, yeah, with Carol that's uh, ill today. Uh, is that correct? Yes, we co-authored a book um, titled Aging and Addiction, and that book is specifically written for the families of older adults who have a problem with alcohol or other drugs. Um, but I've also written, co-authored the book Love First, which is the um, pretty much the go-to book uh, now on intervention, and I co-authored that with uh, Jeff Jay, and then the third book I wrote uh, which was published by Bantam, is No More Letting Go, The Spirituality of Taking Action. All of those books are written for the families who are concerned about somebody with an alcohol or other drug problem. Well, that's certainly where we're going to spend a lot of our conversation time today is on those various subjects. Um, and, but before we get into that, uh, I'd like to find out and have our listeners find out a little bit more about you and uh, how is it that you came to be involved in this topic and uh, working in this field. Uh, what is a little bit of background, if you can give me a little, maybe a two-minute movie of uh, of your where you've been and how you've been and how did you get to where you are now? Absolutely. Um, you know, I think... Most people, I'm going to venture to say most people, start working in the field of addictions because they have their own personal passion um, about treatment and recovery and a a particular love for the alcoholic and addict. In my case, um, I grew up in a family that looked perfect from the outside, but on the inside, um, um, I had a parent who suffered from alcoholism and uh, was called, you know, what people call the functional alcoholic. Very good in his career, very good in the workplace, 
But what I always say when people talk about the functional alcoholic is how do they function in the home? And then people's faces change and you see the pain because people, good people, who become alcoholics, it changes them. Anyone who's lived with an alcoholic understands this. So as a child, you don't you don't know what the problem is, and oftentimes you think you are the problem. And as I grew up, and um, as a family member, as, as, and as a, an adult child of an alcoholic, I was fortunate to get some help for myself, and I became absolutely enamored in the whole recovery process for alcoholics, addicts, and their families. And... Um, Although I had a degree in psychology, I also had a degree in photography and had followed the arts, so I went back to school and uh, to get a specialty in addiction. And then I began working as a therapist for Hazelden. And a lot of people across the country certainly know Hazelden because they are the pioneer of modern treatment. What we think of as treatment started in the 1940s in Minnesota, and Hazelden is still around today. Um, so that was a great learning experience. And from there, I've been in private practice now since 1994. And I work uh, nationally with families who are concerned about somebody they love, their beloved alcoholic, their beloved addict, and they want to help that person um, get into treatment and get into recovery. And that has been fantastic, you know, writing books, speaking publicly around the country, and then working individually with families and not only creating hope but creating major change in a very in a very short amount of time. Families don't understand how much power they have. They feel disempowered. They feel hopeless. But the truth is they have much more power uh, to motivate that loved one than they understand. Well, that's what I was going to suggest in, in hearing what you said, is that the family really plays an integral part in anybody's recovery, assuming that they still have a family, that they haven't alienated, alienated them and lost them through their process. But right. if, they have a, if they have a family, that family can play a very integral part in their recovery, uh, and hopefully their continued, I guess you would call it a continued recovery or uh, a, a, a continued abstinence uh, from whatever the addiction was. This is very true. Um, families can play a huge role. And as you're saying that, I'm going to guarantee you there are people out there that are thinking to themselves, oh, we have tried everything and nothing works. You know, maybe that's true for some people, but our family, we've tried everything. But what I like to say to families is this. Well, Tell me, describe to me, what have you done? What is it you've tried that hasn't worked? Because then you get very good information and you can use that as a, you know, as kind of a, a leap-off point to move families into a place of doing the things that really work well. Because for most of us in our families, we kind of come, we hatch plans around the kitchen table. What we think should work. And oftentimes, we keep trying to do the same thing over and over again. We're so sure it would work that if we try it again, it's going to work this time, and it doesn't. Because most of what you have to do is very counterintuitive. It's actually the opposite of what we think about. So families really need to educate themselves. They need to get good information. How do I do this? Because we hear the word intervention, and certainly we have television shows now that are very popular about intervention, and those shows really do not show you what you need to do. This is really 
a negotiation. I call it a spiritual negotiation. Um, and we are negotiating, we are attempting to negotiate with this person we love so that we end up with a win-win-lose. In other words, the person we love wins, the family wins, but the addiction loses. When families come up with their own ideas, they they hatch these these ideas around the kitchen table, they usually end up in a lose-lose-win negotiation. They lose, their loved one loses, but the addiction wins. That's what we don't want. So it re- it requires a kind of orchestration, if you will, that is done in a very specific, very loving way. It's incredibly power powerful, and about eighty done properly. About eighty five percent of the people accept help that day. So it's, it's, it's very effective. I I am particularly I was particularly drawn to what you just said when uh, the one of the first statements you made was, "What have you done that hasn't worked?" Yes. Uh, that I find absolutely key, and not only, I'm sure, key in your line of work, but key in any business also. This can be taken across the board. What has yes. this company done and tried over and over again that has not worked? And now let's go to what we haven't tried that might work. Absolutely. Uh, and you have to kind of look around because you don't have to reinvent the wheel in most cases. In almost all cases, you do not have to reinvent the wheel. You look for the winners. What did they do? And not just, you know, you want to look where there are a lot of winners, a lot of people who say, you know, we have done this and this is tried and true, We've and it's been done again and again and again to a great deal of success. I mean, you can never promise with something like addiction 100% success, of course, but... 85% going that day, most of the 15% that don't eventually get help with a well-united, well-educated, well-trained family. What are what are the, uh, I guess it would be recidivism rate uh, as far as uh, across, uh, here again, let's talk in generalities. Uh, what kind of numbers are there, success versus non-success or reoccurring versus uh, able to remain uh, straight and sober? Uh, This is such a good question, and it's one that families and alcoholics and addicts themselves ask. You know, you can be working in a treatment center and, you know, the uh, patients are out on the patio and they're having some coffee, they might be having a cigarette, and they're all talking amongst themselves, and invariably you're going to hear one of them say, well, you know, only 25% of us are going to make it. Only one out of four is going to stay sober. But I always say to families, listen, the statistics, first of all, they don't apply to the individual. When somebody goes through a treatment program, when they leave, they're going to be given an aftercare plan, and that aftercare plan is going to tell the person, these are the things that you need to do to have a high probability of success in your treatment. And this is the catch. When people don't do it or they do these things for a while and then they stop or they just do some of them, they're at a high probability for failure. And I always say to families, listen, it's like the kid who flunks out of school, drops out and says to you, you know, college just didn't work out for me. And what I would say is, 
really? College didn't work out for you. Tell me what you did for college. Did you go to class? Did you open the textbook? Did you do your assignments? No, no, no. This is the same thing, as is true of you can go right back to business or any other aspect of life. This is about making changes, following the directions, doing the next right thing, and being consistent. It's not about perfection, of course. We hear that all the time. It's progress, not perfection. But it's about doing the next right thing and following the directions. People who do that, they stay sober in at very high percentages. And to give you an example, we'll just look at physicians. When a physician is working with an organization like a diversion program in their state who has been notified, they understand that the physician, let's say, is an alcoholic, it's interfering with their work. They say, we're going to protect your license, but you're going to have to go to treatment. We have a follow-up program, and you're going to have to follow that program. Depending on the state, it might be for three years, it might be for five years. So we're monitoring you. We're making sure you do do the next right thing. We're making sure you do follow the directions. For physicians, and we can say the same from pilots and for attorneys that are in these programs, but specifically I can tell you the statistics for physicians, and I've just recently received this information, so these are quite fresh. After the first year of treatment, 96% are still sober. There's a study looking at physicians 20 years post-treatment, 20 years after treatment, 73% are still sober. These are very high numbers. So when we look at situations where people do relapse, um, and I, the, numbers, the numbers are soft, you know, what those numbers really are, it's hard to say. Um, but you really are looking at, the percentage of people that don't follow through. So that you can say the same of a diabetic. You know, doctors will tell you the same about diabetics who end up with amputation or they become blind or they have heart problems. And it really is following through and doing what you need to do or not. And when you don't, there are consequences. Um, when, when, if I can just say one more thing about that, when we have a family, and certainly families that do interventions that are well-trained and properly done, they're so educated that they create a, an environment that's so supportive of recovery and makes it so difficult to relapse that um, there's actually a greater success. And there was a study that came out of Brown University. Now, this has been way back, I think, in the early 90s, um, but they said, we don't really know why, but we see that families that do interventions, that there's actually a higher success rate in long-term recovery. I think it's the accountability. The family gets it, they know what to do, and it creates accountability for the alcoholic or addict. Uh, how tough is it on the family to perform an intervention? What What is really involved for that family? I would say... The toughest part is bringing a team together and everybody making that initial decision. And the reason is is because people have preconceived ideas about intervention. They think it's going to be harsh. They think it's going to be an ambush. They watch things on TV that are not are not um, really um, they're not really proper interventions, and you're just seeing you know something that's more dramatic. And 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 less involved than it really is. So yeah, grabbing grabbing him up off the sidewalk, throwing him in the van, and taking him to an institution, right? Type of thing. Yeah, you know exactly. that's you know that's the reality that's created for TV. You know that isn't the reality. So 
when we wrote Love First, um, which has been, you know, has become the classic on intervention, certainly didn't know that while we were writing it, but the idea was, is you know what, at the end of the day, love, well-orchestrated love, um, is more powerful than toughness in getting through to an alcoholic or addict. Primarily, Pete, because they feel so unlovable, and as you said in the beginning of the show, so many people have lost their families or families walk away from them. And even when alcoholics and addicts um, act like they don't need their family and they're angry with their family, down deep they need them desperately and they crave that love. So when families, once they can come together and make that decision, which is the toughest thing, once they start the process and they start learning and they understand that we're going to intervene with love and dignity and respect, uh, but we're not going to be pushovers either. They are empowered. They start seeing, wow, how this is going to work. And they think, why didn't I do this years ago? But, you know, fear, again, keeps us from moving forward. And families, alcoholics and addicts, live in a lot of fear. Um, and oftentimes, you know, they're really verbally abused uh, or abused even physically by the alcoholic. And so... Uh, they get into that learned helplessness. So there's nothing I can do ever. Um, but when they're empowered, it's amazing. When you bring a team together, it's amazing. And you select that team very carefully. Who are the people who have leverage? Who are the people who have influence? Oh, my gosh, here's you know, his Uncle John, and he has always had tremendous respect for his Uncle John. He is on that team. He is not going to walk out the door. Um, and... At the end of the intervention, families are amazed, and I've often had families say to me, "You know, I don't want to be an alcoholic, but I would love some. I'd love my family to do this for me because we never hear how important we are to the people who love us. We never hear why they love us in specific terms. That's always reserved for our funeral, you know, right. our eulogies. But in this, right. this is so the families are just blown away, and I'm blown away working for families because what they are capable of." The tremendous um, love. We have everybody write letters, and it's a very specific way to do it. The letters that they write are so powerful. And, you know, if people listening today can imagine sitting in a room and all of the most important people in your life, all of them sitting there, and one after another writing these, reading, I'm sorry, these incredibly heartfelt beautiful letters, sometimes very funny. You know, you can go from laughing to crying. One after another, the experience is so powerful, it's very, very hard to say no. It's very hard not to accept that help. And the people that that don't accept help that day are the very, very sickest, and we don't give up on them. You know, we say, okay, that's showing us how sick they are. What's our plan B? You know, what's our plan B? What are we going to do next? And we're very creative. Uh, and families are on board. And, you know, it's one of the few opportunities people have to really save a life and to completely change a life. It's really, it's it's a beautiful thing. So it's kind of like if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. Because there's the, they're not going to succeed the first time with everybody. Although you may with the majority of cases, but nonetheless, right. you're gonna you're gonna have that hard nut to crack, and you're gonna have to try it again, and then you're That's gonna have right. to change the approach and try it again, and change That's the approach right. and try it again as many times uh, as many times as it takes 
uh, you're going to have to be willing to make that kind of a sacrifice and a a self-sacrifice and a commitment to the task. And the the families um, being the key uh, have to make sure that they're all pulling on the rope in the same direction too, don't they? That's right. Everybody needs to be on the same page, and they need to stay on the same page. Sometimes they'll start disintegrating. Um, And so a skilled um, professional keep that family and that team united. But, you know, a couple things happened which came to mind as you were talking. Number one, this family now is educated. They understand that nobody chooses to be an alcoholic. You might choose to have a drink, but we're a drinking society. But one out of eight people who drinks actually becomes alcoholic, and we know that it's a genetic predisposition. They actually trip that genetic coding, and alcohol is a different drug in their body. Um, And when families start to understand, wait a minute, this person in my family is sick. They're not being bad. They are sick, and they need my help. And when they push me away or they're angry at me, those are symptoms of their disease there is so much more compassion and the willingness to do just as you said, to say, listen, we're not giving up on this person. We wouldn't give up on them if they had cancer. Exactly. I often use Alzheimer's as an example, you know, because you have to understand the person who is an alcoholic is not the disease of alcoholism. They have that disease. Just like the person who has Alzheimer's is not the disease of Alzheimer's. They're changed, but we still know that's my mom. The disease has changed them. Well, alcoholism changes people too, and those changes are usually unpleasant. But when people get that, they will stick by that loved one. And I certainly know many people in my life today who have years and years of sobriety, and they have families and jobs, they pay taxes, they're productive citizens, only because they had families that wouldn't give up on them. How does somebody become an accidental addict. I mean, I've it, it, and let me let me put this um in, in the terms that I think of uh, people becoming addicted. Uh alcohol addiction is we in no is there there is a gene that mm-hmm. that that gets triggered and when you take your drink of alcohol, you you trigger the gene and uh you're off to the races, so to speak. Correct. Uh but when you're talking about other, and alcohol is a legal drug, when you're talking about the other drugs um, that you have to purchase clandestinely, although now you can get marijuana legally and uh, a whole more. Much right, more yes. They, used to be. There are going to be all sorts of complexities coming with that, I can guarantee you. Exactly. But nonetheless, for the most part, it is still an illegal act. So the, right. question, the, the question that I have and would pose is, one of them could be accidental, the other one is intentional. Is that accurate? This is such a good question. First of all, usually the term accidental addict is reserved for people who become addicted to mood-altering prescription medications that a doctor Okay, gotcha. So let's say mom has fallen, she has broken her hip, doctor gives her Percocet, she becomes addicted. But now we have to be careful because anybody who's on an opiate, like Percocet or Oxycontin or Vicodin, they take enough of it for a long enough period, are going to become physically dependent. Okay? 
Yes. You can become physically dependent without becoming an addict. Once you don't need the drug anymore, the doctor is going to taper you off of the drug to manage any kind of withdrawal symptoms that you might have. You're off the drug, you're fine, and you keep living your life as you always did. When you trip addiction, then things change. All of a sudden, with the addict, it doesn't matter that you've been tapered off the drug. The addictive, the genetic wiring has been tripped, and you now start seeking out this drug without it being a medical necessity. So you may start shopping docs. Now maybe you're... We certainly see this with older adults. We see this with people of all ages, though. So now you have three docs or five docs, and they're all prescribing you, let's say, Vicodin, okay? And when you're older, it's easier to get that because all of a sudden you have a grandmother coming in who's got these pains, and the doctor's not thinking, oh, I've got a, a drug addict in my office. And, of course, she's old, so she must have pain, so, of course, she needs these drugs. So now she's going to different pharmacies to fill them so she doesn't get caught. This is a crime. That is that is a crime. That is not legal. And oftentimes this older adult doesn't realize that. So usually that's what we call the accidental addict. However, for a lot of these people, quite honestly, there probably has been another problem. I think it's it's a small minority where they never had a problem with alcohol or anything and then that happens to them. It can happen but I would say most of the people I've worked with, you can see that they had an alcohol problem and this just exasperated it and it became a much bigger, the addiction just blew up, if you will, with the addition of this other powerful drug that was a medication. But I would say that I think everybody's an accidental addict. Um, this is my own take on it because even people who are using illegal drugs, you know, we sort of have this, subculture in our country where people take illegal drugs for recreation and nobody ever thinks they're going to become addicted. Everybody thinks they're going to stay in control. You know, I've got a handle on this. And, um, and of course, that's not the case. We see, you know, it's a huge problem in our country because um, once you start ingesting the drug, whatever it is, even if it's legal like alcohol, there is no way that you are going to know whether or not you're going to become addicted. It's it's going to happen or it's not going to happen. And um, But some drugs, of course, have a much faster addictive cycle, like crack cocaine, for instance, or crystal meth, um, heroin. You know, it's a much, you know, there used to be a saying, you know, that um, what a, what a crack addict will lose in six months, it could take an alcoholic 15 years to lose. Hmm. So the consequences can be much more severe for some drugs than others. Well, the baby boomer generation, um, I I believe, has uh, been... uh, has been responsible in great part to changing a lot of things in this uh, society of ours, and uh, and their 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 parents, the the World War II generation, has also had a great influence on what's happened in our world. But uh, the baby boomer generation seems to be, to me anyhow, the generation that is most. Uh, associated with the drug culture when it was sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't know as a group, I have no way of knowing, 
how many of us, because I'm of that generation, uh, have uh, experimented with it at a, at, a, at a younger age when we were back in the day, so to speak, and were able to put it down, forget it, and move on with their lives, and how many of us are still have remnants of it or are fully blown into the drug culture as we've gotten older. Uh, I don't know what that is. Do you have any indication of uh, of that? Well, you know, what I can say about that statistically for baby boomers, you know, presently, the statistics that I've seen about baby boomers is that we can expect 10 to 17% of baby boomers to have problems with alcohol or other drugs. Now, when we say problems, does that mean everybody's addicted? Not necessarily. They may be um, abusing mm-hmm. uh, large amounts of alcohol, large amounts of drugs without being addicted, or they may be addicted. And sometimes it's hard to tell the difference between those two things. Um, and the catch is if you start having negative consequences repeatedly in any area of your life, you continue to drink or drug anyway, you probably are suffering from an addiction problem, probably. But this is the thing, and you really hit it, the the the, the drug, sex, and rock and roll. World War II generation, as they aged, their hope was to stay healthy. That was their outlook. I just want to stay healthy as I get older. Baby boomers, their outlook is, I want to be young. I want to stay young. And there's a big difference there. So you have empty nester baby boomers. One of the ways that they feel young is going back to the sex, drugs, and rock and roll era. And they start using drugs again that they were not using while they were raising their children and while they were building their career. So they might go back to doing hallucinogens. They might go back to smoking marijuana. Um, They might go back to doing cocaine. Uh, certainly we're seeing heroin. So there's a, a difference there in seeing the drug use as something that helps them regain their youth, where actually that kind of abuse of drugs or alcohol moves people quickly from what we would call young-old into old-old because mm-hmm. of the way it starts tearing down the body and the way it adversely affects the brain. And the older adults, um, have a different tolerance than what they did when they were younger, correct? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. What, what? Let's say you're 35 years old, and um, one drink is one drink, and you're 65 years old or 70. That one drink could be the equivalent of two or three drinks, and you know, your liver is metabolizing things differently, and if you've been drinking quite a bit throughout the years, your liver could definitely be even more compromised. Um, Your body, there's a word, frangible, and frangible meaning that um, you might be healthy, but you can no longer tolerate um, adversity as well as you could when you were young. So you could have a healthy older adult, but suddenly you start, abusing alcohol, it will take your um, health away much, much more quickly. And um, also the brain, because we know the brain naturally atrophies as we age, but alcohol and other drugs 
really speed up the uh, atrophy. So the brain brain starts shrinking, and not only that, the activity of the brain drops. So the brain is much less active. So the kinds of changes you'd see in the brain anyway are exasperated considerably. So you see a lot of cognitive decline, short-term memory problems. Adult children will say, oh, I know if mom calls me after 6 p.m., she's never going to remember a word of what she said. Um, Or she repeats herself over and over and over again. Whereas without the alcohol, in most cases, once these older adults get into recovery, their cognitive abilities come back and and the uh, short-term memory problems disappear. Well, it's it's I understand what they're saying, uh, what you're saying with regard to the brain. Because I, I I jokingly say I don't. When somebody says, "Would you like a drink?" and I said, "No, I don't drink anymore." I said, "I burned all those brain cells that I could afford to burn when I was." Young. <laughs> right. uh, uh, but uh, it, I, I do know when I in the, in the the very rare occasion when I do have uh, a beverage, an adult, an adult beverage, as they say, I um, I feel it so much quicker. And I feel it so much longer for such a, sh- a small amount of alcohol <laughs> that I consume right. by, com- by comparison to what I used to be able to consume. I mean, it, it, it's the old story about, man, I used to be able to go out and party every night, get up, go to work, not miss a beat, and so on and so forth. If I go out and if I have two drinks, God forbid I have three, I'm sluggish the next day. I don't feel like getting out of bed. When I get out of bed, I'm just drunk and dragging around going, oh, my God, what did I do? And... uh it's it's not the same. <laughs> it's, no, it definitely not is not the same. And uh, you know, the just once, just just the metabolism. I mean, that alcohol is going to stay in your body much longer. Yes. Uh, for anybody, and and that's older. You know, it's just going to stay in your body a lot longer. So it's pounding away at your brain longer. It's pounding away at all of your internal organs longer. And so, yes, you're going to feel it. It's going to be stronger, the effect, and it's going to last longer, and the hangovers are going to be more brutal. And the brain, the clarity of your thinking is going to take longer to, um, you know, to come back. Well, basically, if it's staying in your system longer because you're not metabolizing it, you're not passing it through. I mean, you're just right. you're just increasing the pickling process. That's uh, it. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, and I don't know of any way you can say it other than that. Um, what's what's the difference between the the baby boomer uh, and their adult addictions and the World War II generation and their adult addictions and how and and why is it that there is a difference at all? Well, you know, again, I think you said it. Alcohol is a legal drug, and mm-hmm. for people over the age of 21, and in most circumstances. Obviously, it's not legal if you're behind the wheel of your car, but it's a legal drug. So, first of all, baby, I mean, um, the World War II generation, the majority of them would be loath to ever use illegal drugs. Yes. Um, They had a different worldview, most certainly, and their um, ethics and beliefs about breaking the law in that way uh, there's higher stigma about illegal drugs, and they're just not going to go there. So if it's not alcohol, the other drug that they can become addicted to are the prescription drugs. If I'm getting it from my doctor, it's okay. Even if I've got three or four doctors giving me the same drug, now in my addiction I'm still saying that's okay. 
baby because boomers. Because it's, legal, it's legally prescribed. After all, my doctor is right. giving it to me. My doctor's right. giving it to me, and my doctor wouldn't be giving it to me if I was a problem. And frankly, the, old, the adult children, the children are oftentimes thinking the same thing. Well, the doctor must know what he or she is doing, giving mom these pills, although people are getting much hipper to that. You know, that, mm-hmm. that yes. isn't necessarily true. So that's the older, you know, the, uh, the World War II generation. That's typically what you're going to see. It's really rare to see street drugs with that generation. It can happen occasionally, but it's very rare. Baby boomers grew up, you know. We grew up, it was Vietnam, it was the, you know, the whole, uh, you know, the flower child, the love-ins, you know, getting high, listening, you know, listening to rock and roll, and actually becoming anti-establishment. You know, right, right. We're we're against the man. <laughs> you know, as it was said, oh, true. That's and oftentimes true. the man was the one who was determining that all these drugs were illegal, and you'd get in big trouble if you were caught with them. And so that kind of mentality is carried through. You even see it sometimes. I mean, not sometimes, frequently in the parenting, where the baby boomers have been really relaxed about their own children using illicit drugs, um, and you know the big controversy around that. Uh, you know, as far as, you know, what what is appropriate parenting. So, yes, I mean, I think it's just that it's really that world view. Now, another thing we see with the World War II generation, though, I'd like to add, is the gambling problem. Oh, okay. Uh, going to the casinos. Yes. And the casinos have figured out in many areas, what do we do in this middle of the day when there aren't too many people at the roulette, you know, wheel, and figured out, well, hey, you know, this is, you know, we have all these seniors, and it's a great outing, and we'll even, you know, have buses that can come and pick them up, and you can come and have lunch and gamble the afternoon away. And so, have a drink and have a drink while and, you're playing. And have a drink or two. Uh, so that's another issue with uh, that generation um, is the gambling. So you go into a casino in the middle of the afternoon, and you're likely to see a lot of that older adult generation from World War II. It's amazing. It's, it's funny you should mention that, and I hadn't even thought of that, although I know it to be true. I live here in a in a 55-plus community, and just not a mile from me, or maybe about a mile from me, is a huge parking lot for one of the recreation centers here. And that is the staging place for buses going to the Indian reservations locally, going for a quick over uh, a quick turnaround to Las Vegas or to Laughlin in particular here from the uh, northwest part of Arizona, uh, northwest part of Phoenix. I'm sorry, and or they go and they go up for a, a two day junket or a one one night uh, in uh, in Las Vegas, and and these buses go in and out of there regular, on a regular basis, and they are chocked full of of. Oh, seniors, uh, not yeah. not boomers, but seniors, and um, they are just going and having a heck of a time, and Absolutely. and some of them never miss it. That's right. It That's has become right. a part of their life. Absolutely, because there are people that might go occasionally, and they have a little, they have a budget. You know, I'm going to spend twenty dollars, and if I lose it, that's it. You know, and that's all they ever do. Right. But then you've got your seniors, and they are running through the retirement. Mm-hmm. And that's even harder to detect than, you know, some kind of addiction to a medication. The kids don't know what's happening. And the kids might be living, you know, the parent might be in, in Arizona, and the kids are living in Illinois. Right. They don't know what's happening until there's a crisis. And all of a sudden, wow, mom ran through all the money. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Now what do we do? 
Exactly. Now what do we yeah. do? That's 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 the way it is. Uh it it so there are really more than one addiction. there's more than one addiction. An sure. addiction I mean we've been talking about alcohol primarily and and, and some drugs. But there's different types of addictions. Uh, what are the most common addictions that you see in uh, the baby boomers? Is it is it the, the alcohol and the drugs primarily? Yes, alcohol is always number one. And why is that? Alcohol is legal. As you pointed out, it's readily accessible. So that's going to be the drug that most people are going to choose because it's socially acceptable and it's okay. And you're, as long as you don't drive, you're going to be okay. Um, so... So that's the number one addiction. The uh, prescription drugs, illicit drugs, will fall in after that. We're starting to see, however, we have the street drug problem, but the prescription drug problem is accelerating in different parts of the country. For instance, Florida, they're now saying, hey, we think the prescription drug addiction is has um, is, is, is more prevalent than the street drugs now. And again, that's because, well, I'm getting it from my doctor. I don't have to go buy it from the dealer on the street I'm getting it from the doctor's office and fulfilling it at the, at the pharmacy. Um, what happens there, however, and is happening with baby boomers and younger adults, kids, kids, is that after the doctors won't give you the pills anymore and you're addicted and you go out on the street and you want to buy one pill of Oxycontin, which is not going to get you through the day because now you're taking 20 a day, for your addiction, one pill can cost you thirty to eighty dollars, depending where you live. A bag of heroin is ten bucks. So we have this huge insurgence of heroin addiction, uh, addiction in this country, um, among all age groups. But we're also seeing, you know, gambling is a problem, uh, very insidious. We're seeing sex addiction, especially because of uh, the internet. Um, and again, it's because there's no accountability. It used to be if you were looking for that sort of thing, you had to go out to an adult bookstore, for instance, or you had to find prostitutes somewhere. You're out, and people who know you might see you, but now you can be on the Internet and do all of that in the privacy of your own home. And um, some people are becoming incredibly addicted to uh, sex, pornography, and then oftentimes that is very involved with drug use crystal meth, cocaine um, in particular. So, And those can be very hidden uh, hidden addictions. Um, it's hard for people to see what's going on. The, the percentage of uh, addictions, <clears throat> excuse me, is percentage of addictions from one generation to the next, is it safe to say that the senior generation, the World War II generation, has a smaller percentage, the baby boomer generation has a larger percentage, and then possibly their children have a still larger percentage as regards addiction? Is, is that what it's showing? Interestingly, it has remained, to the best of my knowledge, constant. I would say probably the only thing now and I'm and I'm not 100% sure. I'm just going to make it very clear that this is a guess on my part. I would say that because of the prevalence of prescription of highly addictive prescription drugs, both the opiates, we have amphetamines like Adderall being prescribed even to young children. I would ask the question, is that increasing the number of addicts in our population? I couldn't answer that question to you, but I would not be surprised if the answer was yes. Mhm. Mm mhm. Mm yeah, it it's just 
it seems like a, a it seems like a logical trend. I I don't know. I, maybe I'm just reading something into it that I really have no no basis in fact. Uh, <laughs> well, you know. I think you know we can kind of sometimes feel things happening maybe before we really know. We just feel it. We could be wrong. Yeah. I don't know the answer. But, you know, for instance, with the prescription drugs, and this is something else with older adults, and I'm even talking World War II generation older adults, they're on Social Security. They're selling out of their house their prescription drugs to their neighbors. Really? So in neighborhoods now, people know who has the Vicodin, who has the Oxycontin, they're getting them from their doctor, and they're selling the pills, and they are starting to be arrested. There was a case not too long ago in Florida, a retiree, who said, well, I was just trying to supplement my Social Security by selling my prescription medications. But when you can make 30 to $80 a pill, that's a lot of money. So if you're getting 30 pills, do the math. Right. So we're starting to see that we're getting our idea of who the drug pusher is is changing radically with the prescription drug problem. Well, yeah, it's uh, you know, you look up drug pusher in the dictionary; it's no longer the sleazeball standing on the corner. Right. Uh, right. Pretty pretty amazing. Yeah. Uh, so also, parents with kids they have to realize, you know, it's a different world today. They could be, you know, getting the Vicodin from nice Mr. Johnson down the block. And they could be getting it from the uh, from the class president. Uh, they could sure. be getting it from the valedictorian. Uh, they could be getting it anywhere. At this anywhere. Country. They could be getting it from, uh, you know, grandma's medicine cabinet. That's right. That's right. It's everywhere. It, yeah, it is. It is. It's everywhere. It's everywhere, as they as they say. Um, what 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 can be done um, to Stop it! What? What? what how? I mean, certainly the interventions and so on and so forth on a case by case basis. But you who see you, somebody who sees it all the time, who works in the field, do you ever get into discussions with uh, other professionals with regard to what do we have to do to stop this problem in our society? That is such the big question. That is such the big question. Um, when we look at the United States today, of all the opiate pain medications that are produced in the world, we use 90% of them, 90. What is it about this culture? We are the greatest country, arguably, in the world. We have the highest standard of living in the world, and yet we're consuming these drugs like mad. And it's like a tsunami. I mean, really, Pete, it's like a tsunami. How do you stop it? Um, it's becoming so normalized. Everybody everybody talks about their medications. You know, and I'm not talking older adults who, you know, have heart medications. I'm talking about young people with, you know, everybody talks about it as if it's normal. So what is the answer? I mean, really, when we look at the, the attempts, um, the attempts uh, to develop prevention programs, they haven't done a whole lot. And a lot of the ones that are the most popular, when they've been studied, they find out they're not really that effective. I mean, ultimately, I think it's going to come down to families. Families need to be educated. Here we have this disease of addiction. You know, when we look at alcoholism, one of the oldest diseases known to mankind, and it's still so poorly understood. Um, and I think it's got to come from within the home, certainly with parents, um, so many parents think, oh, my kid could never do that, or 
my kid is doing it, but what's the big deal? And right then and there, you've lost you've lost the war right there. Mm-hmm. Yes, you have. You know, you really have. I mean, what do you? How do you stand up against that? When you have parents that are vigilant and their kids are great, but they're thinking to themselves, "Yeah, my kids are great, but there's a whole world out there. There's a cultural world out there that actually is going to be more powerful parenting my child than me." It is a powerful with the media, everything out there. I need to be absolutely vigilant, and I need to assume that my kid is going to try these drugs, not the other way around. I need to keep my eyes wide open because there are two things you have to realize as a parent. It's availability, and guess what? It's available everywhere, just as we just said. You know, you cannot control that. The second thing is opportunity. That's where you have some say. You know, Am I giving my kid easy opportunities to, to get high? And it, when do they get high? They get high like from three in the afternoon to seven at night. You know, after school, that period is most likely when they're going to get high. And oftentimes, there's, there are no parents around. Well, that's very, very true. Uh, I know from when I was raising my daughter, uh, we had a situation where uh, I was raising her primarily during the school year. And we'd had we had the talks, and she's now she's a, an adult woman with a family of her own, and now she's she's raising two beautiful children. And I tell you right now, I wouldn't want to be raising those kids in this day and age. But uh, she's Very got <laughs> she and her Very husband <laughs> she and her husband have their work cut out for them. Yeah. And as does any parent. I don't Absolutely. care. Any parent has their work cut out for them. But I do know that when she was in high school, and that was a long time ago already. My gosh, it's been a long time ago. But nonetheless. Uh, she always had the opportunities, and I always knew that she had the opportunities, and I always knew that she knew that I knew that she had the opportunities. (laughs) And I made that abundantly clear. I said, I know that it's there, and I know that you know where to get it, and I have to trust you not to do it, period. That's the end of the conversation. She once told me, she said, Dad, she said, they got this big, went through the campus today, and they had this big sweep and went through lockers looking for guns. And she says, and I could have told them who had the guns in the lockers. I knew where they yeah. were. And I went, yeah. whoa. And she was a jock. She was a good student. She was a great citizen. And she still, they all know. They all know oh, who they has do. them. And they, they know who secrets. has the drug. And they know who has the drugs. And they know where to go to get them. They do, and that's the thing what a parent needs to do. They need to have clear expectations. You need to have those conversations. And, mm-hmm. again, it comes down to accountability. And it's having a good relationship because, obviously, in talking to your daughter and having that conversation with her, she respected you. She did not want to lose that respect. And, you know, we have to develop those kinds of relationships with our kids because once they get on the drugs, now all the people they used to respect – those people are seen through the lens of the drug. Now you're the enemy. Right. Because right. you know I'm on the drugs. My parents are now the enemy. I have to lie to you. I have to hide. The police officer is the enemy. The school teacher is the enemy. And Now I have to sneak around. That's right. I have to sneak around. I need to lie. Occasionally I talk to high schools, and, you know, I say to kids, um, you know, when you go to visit your grandmother and she says, so what have you been doing lately? Do you say, oh, Grandma, I've been smoking crack? You know, if you can't be honest with people you love the most, what's going on? What is going on? And, you know, interestingly, it's hard to get to those kids, but you could see the shame across so many of their faces because, again, it comes down to families. 
and the love you have for the the people in your family. It it, it really does, and and that's why it is, in my opinion, and we're talking about families here and so on and so forth, uh, somewhat directly, but also indirectly as it relates to the addictions, and but probably. Families pay a, play a greater role in the prevention of addictions than the law or than the teacher or anybody else. It's the family that has to be able to, be able to and willing to spend the time with the young person, to share, right. with, to share with the young person, to let the young person know that they're, that, that they're valued, they're cherished, and uh, they are. They are. It's hoped that they are going to be able to have nothing but good come of them as they as they grow. And there are with the trials and tribulations of the society today, and the the issues that are going on in the society with people trying to make ends meet and so on and so forth. It really gets difficult. And when the parents are depressed, the kids depressed. When right. The, when the parents are borderline losing their house, the kids are borderline losing their house That's as right. well. And that that's where I think a lot of this stuff could hopefully be uh, lessened. I don't know if it could be totally alleviated, but it could be lessened if we could do away with some of the outside influences and pressures and have to, people just live a little bit lighter, lighter, yeah. in, lighter in their seats, you know. I don't, I don't right. know. As, as a psychologist, maybe you can, or a psychiatrist, well, maybe you can uh, comment to that. Um, um, what I would say, and I'm an addiction specialist, I'm not a psychiatrist, but oh, I would okay. say most definitely because you're creating these bonds with your children. You create the sense of accountability. You have these conversations even if they're rolling their eyes because trust me, while they're rolling their eyes, they are listening to you. And so you don't let that deter you. <coughs> Pardon me. The other thing is, you may do all the right things and your child still gets involved with drugs, but you know right. what? You still have that great foundation with your child. You have those years of building that relationship. So if that happens, you're in a better position already because you have this mutual respect. So I would say to parents, if you see that your child is getting involved, is involved with drugs, they're in trouble, don't ever listen to anybody who says, A, that's just a normal part of growing up. It is not. B, there's nothing you can do unless they want help. Forget that advice. You are the parent. There are plenty of things that you can do, and you have a lot of leverage. You have a lot of influence. Get good help. Learn what to do. Be proactive and stay involved with your kid because the sooner you can get them out of the drugs, the better off you are. You wait until they become adults and the problems accelerate, and now they're adults, things get much more difficult. So... Parents should stay on top of those things and don't be afraid of taking action. Never be afraid of taking action. And one family member. No, go right go ahead. ahead. I'm sorry. I was just going to say, one per family member said to me, because oftentimes families are worried that their kids are not going to like them anymore. They're going to be mad at them. It's like you're not the friend, you are the parent. And as one person said to me, they can get over being mad at me, but they're not going to get over being dead. <laughs> yeah, that's that's very true. Uh, yeah. I, I I remember saying to one person one time when they said they were so depressed and so on and so forth that they were contemplating ending their life, and I said that is a 
permanent solution to a temporary problem. That's right. And, That's right. And, and, but getting back to the addiction side of things, what you were saying with regard to get involved, even when they're rolling their eyes and so on and so forth as far as the kids when they're smaller, and even as they start getting to young adulthood and into adulthood, if it hasn't been captured or caught or terminated prior to that, you still have to stay with it. But as a baby boomer, when you are talking to your adult parents who are of the World War II generation and they're going off down a path that they don't normally go off and you can see and you know why and how, and you have to do the same with them when they start rolling their eyes, don't you? Absolutely. Learn how to do a very loving intervention, if I may. I'll give people our website, lovefirst.net. That's .net, N-E-T. Lots of information there. And the Love First approach, really, we started it with older older adults, and then we realized it worked great for any age. But your older parent, um, even if they are angry, even if they push you away, they... They cherish you. They cherish their grandchildren. One of the most powerful thing with, things with older adults is, Mom, Dad, what do you want your legacy to be? You know, right. in an intervention to ask that question, what do you want your legacy? Do you want your children and your grandchildren to think of you as dying from alcoholism? That's very powerful for that generation. When you get older, you start thinking about what is my legacy? Do I always want to be remembered as the grandma who died of alcoholism? No, I don't. Mhm. Mhm. Yeah, that's that that you sometimes you just have to take that uh that ace out of the deck or, or that joker out of the deck and play it. That That's the, exactly right. That last wild card, you you get if it comes down to that, uh you that's have right. you have to play that last card. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. Well, yeah, I'm I'm looking at the clock on the wall here and um we're down to the short rows, as they say. In, uh, in, in <laughs> well, this pharmacy. has been the fastest hour. Our, I've enjoyed it immensely. It has been quick, and I also have enjoyed it. And I and I'm sure that our listeners, whoever may be listening now, and whoever will hear this on the archives, are going to get some good information out of this as well. And uh, and Deborah, I, I always conclude our our broadcast by saying to our guests first of all thank you for being with us and second of all this is your opportunity to give your shameless self-promotion so go ahead and tell us anything you want to tell us and tell the listeners anything you want to tell them about how they can get hold of you and if you have services they can avail themselves of how do they do that absolutely um you know If anybody is concerned about somebody in their family, a friend, somebody that they love with a problem, go on the website, lovefirst.net. First of all, they'll get so much information. It'll be so helpful. If they have a question for me, there's a contact page. Email me. Tell them they just say that they heard this, this show. Email me. I will email them back with an answer most definitely. Also, families can pick up the book, Love First. Um, it is a very detailed roadmap on how to help someone you love in a very respectful way. Uh, and a lot of families use that book without using a professional uh, very successfully, but it definitely tells you in the book when you need a professional. So there are ways to get good information to get you started thinking in a different way how to help this person that you love so much. 
And I know that there was something else that uh, you wanted to mention, and that was the uh, treatment center at Absolutely. And this is – we didn't get a chance to talk about that, but – Older adults do best in age-specific treatment with other people their same age. As you can imagine, you know, a 60-year-old is not going to be enjoying being with a 19-year-old with all the piercings and the tattoos. So Pine Grove uh, in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, they have a program, as it turns out, it's called Legacy for older adults. It's fantastic. Go on their website, look up Pine Grove, um, and you will learn all about Legacy. But it's an excellent, excellent program for older adults. And that's pinegrovetreatment.com, is that correct? Yes, that is correct. Okay, and, very good. Uh, it's excellent. And they'll they'll answer your questions as well. Okay. Very good. Very good. Well, thank you very much for being a guest today, uh, Deborah. I, I appreciate and uh, I'm very pleased with the fact that you could fill in uh, for the person that was sick, uh, Colleen. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll try to have you back again because I think there's so much else we could talk about, including your days with Oprah Winfrey. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, we could. Well, I'd love to come back, Pete. You take care, and thank you very much for having me on. And thank you very much for being on. Take care. Bye. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. And that has been Deborah J., adult addiction specialist, and she's just absolutely wonderful. I'm glad she could make it today and be with us. She was uh, pinch-hitting for uh, her friend uh, that was not able to to make it because she got ill. So at any rate, uh, we're going to be changing our posts that will indicate uh, her information because she was the one that was the guest today. So you can watch for that and uh, contact her uh, via the websites that she mentioned. And we hope that uh, you don't have a need for her services. But in the event that you do, make sure that you make the contact. Thank you very much. We'll be back again tomorrow with uh, Making It, our small business show. Our guest will be Ms. Deborah Brown, and she'll be talking about branding for your small business. And then we'll be back with another guest at 11. So we hope you'll join us both times tomorrow. Have a great day, everybody, and we'll talk to you again real soon. interesting conversation to the world. Be sure to follow us on Twitter where we tweet as Boomer and Babe and on Facebook as Pete Peters 47. As always, you can friend us on Blog Talk Radio or sign up for our newsletter at boomerandthebabe.com. Email us at host at boomerandthebabe.com with any of your comments. Remember, at 50, you're just getting started. 